Andrew Breitbart uh, coined the phrase that politics is downstream from culture. We as a culture, both here in the United States and across the West, are we're dealing with these issues around loneliness and a feeling of disconnection even before the pandemic hit. And now with the pandemic, with the so-called social distancing, that's as much a metaphorical phrase as a real phrase, which is to say that we all feel more distanced from one another. And so if that is the culture, then I think, I believe what we're seeing in our politics resonates from that, which is to say, we're seeing a hyper identification with our political identities. Mm -hmm. That if we don't have these other ways of connecting one, with one another in our faith communities, in our uh, work lives, you know, the things that you would do to see other people and interact, if all those are removed, then human beings, because we are communal creatures, will look for those opportunities to find those communities. And in this case, I believe many of us, and this cuts across left and right, are finding their almost exclusive identities in, the, in politics. So being able to, yes, understand expertise, but understanding that expertise only can give a limited view and needs to be seen holistically, I think is such a challenge uh, we're facing now in public policy. Communitarian politics would say that it's much more of an organic approach to local policy. You know, the, the, the great phrase that is used by some of my friends in local government is that there's no Republican or Democratic way to fill a pothole, right? <laughs> but we all agree the pothole needs to be filled. Oh my goodness, I just love that. Hey everyone, it's Jennifer. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Connection. You know, for much of my life, I struggled in my attempts to coalesce years of spiritual study with my material and tangible worlds. I've been on a perpetual mission to apply all I've learned in the spiritual sciences and health and wellness arenas in a practical way, with the ultimate goal of creating a life that feels fulfilling, purposeful, and full of joy. Many people don't know this about me, but my undergraduate degree is actually in public policy. And after 2020, I found a renewed interest in this area of study, excited to merge my passion for health with my original curiosity for politics. So much so, that I applied for my master's in public policy at Pepperdine University. Well, that didn't end up working out. However, I did meet our next guest, the Dean of the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine, Pete Peterson, through my application process, and I couldn't be more excited to share our conversation. Pete is a leading national speaker and writer on issues related to civic participation and the use of technology to make government more responsive and transparent. He was the first executive director of the bipartisan organization Common Sense California. Well, California, you can use a little more of that. In addition to his duties as the Dean for the School of Public Policy, Peterson writes widely on public engagement for a variety of major news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and San Francisco Chronicle, as well as numerous blogs. He's a regular guest on the Politics Roundtable with host Larry Mantle on KPCC Radio. Pete has been a public affairs fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he serves on the leadership councils of the Public Policy Institute of California and California Forward, and on the boards of the Homeland Security Advisory Council and the Da Vinci Charter Schools. I loved delving into this part of my brain with Pete as we actually find a convergence between spirituality and politics, if you can believe it. We talk about how information from quote-unquote experts outside a greater context of health is misdirected, and we even get a little philosophical as we turn towards the topic of dying. Pete introduces us to the idea of communitarianism and examines the importance of the ideals and promises as outlined in the United States Constitution and holding up a standard of excellence to which we can all strive. Finally, Pete discusses how friendship is crucial for healing the increasing divide in our country and a bit about the mass exodus from California. I was thoroughly engaged re-listening to this conversation with Pete, and I think you will be as well. Enjoy. All right, Pete, Pete Peterson. Yep. What a great name. It's Norwegian. <laughs> Less than a curse. Yeah, I bet. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Great to be with you. Yeah, a little out of my wheelhouse, kind of. Well, Most people don't know that I have a, my undergrad is in public policy. Yeah. 
and I got a renewed interest in it. As with many people, 2020 shifted things for me and priorities and made me question what I really wanted to do. And so I applied to Pepperdine for my master's in public policy. And I watched you on the video, on the intro video for the school here. And it's like reach out, let's have a cup of coffee. And I said, yeah. okay. <laughs> so I did. Yeah. And we chatted. And unfortunately, I didn't I didn't get in, but it did renew this sense of, not activism, but getting involved in yeah. community and doing something different um, and kind of marrying my passion for health and wellness yeah. with policy and thinking, well, maybe this is something I want to get into. Um so I'm still interested, and yeah. I and I love to have these conversations. So I'm excited. Great, me too. Uh, how did you get into this field? Because I know yours wasn't a direct route either. No, it wasn't. It actually, I was in the private sector in the New York metro area for better part of 15 years. Uh, went to George Washington University undergrad in D.C. and I think it's fair to say that I I had the political bug. I mm-hmm. mean, I definitely was interested in politics, followed it, but was really more of a hobby for the better part of, of 15 years. Um, but went through the experience of uh, being in New York on 9-11, mm-hmm. and that, I think it's fair to say, was a um, life-altering event for me, uh, one that really led me to evaluate then at the age of uh, 35 uh, what I had been doing with my career. and. Um, for me, that meant looking at the prospect of going back to graduate school, getting involved in politics more as a, a vocation or a, a calling. Mm-hmm. And um, initially, that had me think about going to the schools back east where I was familiar, but um, came out here to California. My wife and her family are from out here, learned about Pepperdine's program, and um, picked up stakes, quit the job, drove cross country, age of uh, 39, started in the program here. So um, has been a real career change uh, for me starting in my late 30s, but essentially was the transition from an interest or hobby into obviously what's become more of a vocation. Was there any personal uh, kind of impetus or did something change? Cause for me, I know there was a personal growth element to that. Yeah. I, I then out of 2020, I viewed the world differently and they're yeah. saying like t- 2020 is kind of the version of nine 11, right? It's the first kind of big thing that's changing us right. fundamentally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 2020 kind of changed the way I saw the world. Yeah. I, I did a lot of inner work and I have a different perspective. Yeah. Um, and that, again, was what led me to apply. Yeah. Was there something in your life that no, happened it's a personally? Good it was question, yeah. I mean, I, I had come to faith, uh, Christian faith, in my mid-20s, so that predates 9-11 by about 10 years. But I had never studied the uh, writings about the subject of calling and vocation mm. until 9-11. Mm. And so when I was really kind of wrestling with, could I see myself doing what I had been doing for what, God willing, would be another 30 years of a career, or would I actually take a step to go back towards something that I had had this long-held interest in? Uh, It was reading a lot about the subject of calling, and that's something that has both a secular foundation to it, um, as well as certainly a, a Christian foundation to it. But it really made me think about things like what are my gifts and talents? Where where are my passions? And seeing if it'd be possible to connect um, professionally uh, what I had some deep interests around, which were policy and politics. And so for me, that meant having to go back to school because I'd been in marketing and advertising for 15 years. If I wanted to go work on Capitol Hill or go work at a think tank, there was just no way that I was ever going to get hired. So it it necessitated going back to school. But I think you put that very well, that it was the, the decision was part of a broader kind of understanding for me about the importance of calling and when it's possible to try to line up that sense with uh, career decisions. So that led me uh, back to graduate school. Yeah. yeah. In, in Eastern philosophy, we call it Dharma. Yeah. Dharma or purpose. Yeah. Um, 
I guess I'm not as familiar with the Christian text, so yeah. I'm sure there's stories about it, but it's it's a pivotal yeah. concept in 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 Tantra and Hinduism is is a calling and yeah. like a higher purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So which brings me to a great kind of topic is this merge of purpose, spirituality, and politics, which seem like completely divergent and yeah. and are even our system is set up to say there is a separation between church and state. Right. Um, and I think that's the institutions of church and state. But how do you see these things as coming together? Well, I think to put it crassly... Uh, the, Please do. Yeah. I, love, <laughs> no, the, the, I love crassness. The, the, the late um, political commentator uh, from these larger cultural issues... Mm. Um, then I think that's where the two really tie in together. Mm. And so the work that we do here at Pepperdine and some of my interests are really at that nexus of faith, culture, and politics. And where I think we're seeing those things uh, interconnect is around this uh, subject of loneliness, which is this um, topic that sounds very squishy, but is one that's been researched by pretty hardened quantitative social scientists um, from across the disciplines, from economics to social psychology to political science to political philosophy. And I think all of them are agreeing that we as a culture, both here in the United States and across the West, are we're dealing with these issues around loneliness and a feeling of disconnection even before the pandemic hit. And now with the pandemic, with the so-called social distancing, that's as much a metaphorical phrase as a real phrase, which is to say that we all feel more distanced from one another. And so if that is the culture, then I think, I believe what we're seeing in our politics resonates from that, which is to say, we're seeing a hyper-identification with our political identities. Mm-hmm. That if we don't have these other ways of connecting one, with one another in our faith communities, in our uh, work lives, right? People, Everybody's working remotely. Um, if it's in other areas of civil society, if it's in our, um, you know, hobbies. You know, you remember for a long time, all of our parks were closed. You couldn't go hiking. You know, the things that you would do to see other people and interact, if all those are removed, then human beings, because we are communal creatures, will f- look for those opportunities to find those communities. And in this case, I believe many of us, and this cuts across left and right, are finding their almost exclusive identities in the, in politics. Mm-hmm. And in that, a tribalism mm-hmm. results out of that. And so, again, back to this, you know, politics being downstream from culture, um, I think that's that aptly describes the, the challenges that we're facing. And you just summed up why you are not such an anomaly for this, for this podcast, mm-hmm. you know, because I historically have been interviewing health and wellness people and spiritual people, but you nailed it. It's connection and it's, it's gone virtually. Well, and to the specific point about health, you know, one of the people who's been very involved in our initiative here at the policy school has been examining this issue is a psychiatrist who practices at UC Mm. Irvine and has just been seeing a lot of these issues across age demographics from young 20-somethings and you know, even teenagers, certainly in through the elderly, where people, uh, again, exacerbated by uh, the pandemic, are just not finding their usual ways of connecting with one another. And that is leading to a lot of healthcare outcomes that are problematic. Uh, the Surgeon General in the Obama administration, who is now back now in the Obama uh, Biden administration, serving as our new Surgeon, Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy has described loneliness as a national health care crisis. Yeah. And so the health and wellness piece of this is really a significant part. Of course, being at a policy school, I'm also thinking about the policy and politics of it, but they're all so interconnected. Yeah. Um, but when you have your Surgeon General, uh, who's essentially kind of the chief 
health policy coordinator in the White House saying that there's a real national challenge here around loneliness, you see how this really does cut across categories. I'm glad I hadn't heard that. And of course, that's not in the press. Yeah. You know, that's not getting a whole lot of press. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I, I always said like, oh my gosh, I want, I want what I know about health and wellness and men, also mental health, which yeah. is really what you're pointing to. Yeah, yeah. Um, that knowledge can't be alternative anymore. Yeah. That needs to start infiltrating the mainstream. Like I put that on an Instagram post. Acupuncture cannot be considered alternative mm. healthcare anymore. Like it really needs to be supported. Well, and I think, for, the, I think the other part that you raise as well is, and this is my hope, is that this time where the trend lines around loneliness were, as I said before, they were rising before we hit the pandemic, yeah. right? So it's not like this is just a pandemic issue. My hope is that because everything was just so ratcheted up in this last year, that we're coming to a greater sense of our nature as communal creatures who really do need connection one to another and that those things, institutions that we've always participated in, whether it's faith communities or yoga classes or mm -hmm. our businesses, you know, I, I understand the importance and the flexibility that working remotely will give us. And I don't think that's going away. At the same time, I hope we recognize as well that there's a civic component to our workplaces that puts us into the lives of one another in a way that is really, that builds and, and maintains mental health in such a way that I hope we recognize that in all, in new ways. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking about, um, you know, this idea that, that I think, I don't know if it's Pepperdine's or your personal program, but the idea of communitarianism yeah. and, you know, we're less likely, you see people on social media that say, literally, if I ever saw you, I'd punch you in the face. Yeah. And I'm like, who would do that yeah. to your neighbor? Right. Right. Like when you're so distanced from people, you yeah. feel like you could do that. Yeah. And you're not going to have a discussion. Right. Discussions are closed. But when you... And the discussion has been limited to that social media interaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And I don't, you know, I don't want to be pessimistic, but to tie it into kind of these lockdowns, do you think that's why people are now going enough? Yeah. Because it's not justifying, to me, the numbers don't justify it. The facts don't justify this disintegration of connection and people are tied, especially in the, you see in the faith-based communities that yeah. where they're not allowing people to gather for right. church. And, right. um, and I don't think many people knew that, that they didn't, the Supreme, one of the courts knocked down California. Court Was it the Supreme court? Yeah. You don't hear about that. You know, you, you've raised two really important issues here. One is the, this, uh, communitarian approach to our politics, which is very much a part of uh, the work that we're doing here at the Graduate Policy School. I'll talk about that in a second. But the other piece, and this came up actually in a conversation, a webinar that I was hosting between uh, the former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner, and the current mayor of Dallas, a gentleman by the name of Eric Johnson, and the subject of how we lead major cities in the midst of the pandemic came up. And I raised the question, which I think goes to one of the issues that you're raising here, uh, which is to say, what do you do when your experts disagree? Because I, I think that's a real challenge that's facing us all as informed citizens, which is to say, Dr. Fauci is an expert on issues relating to uh, the, the spread of viruses like this and how we respond to it. But if that expertise around virology is not situated within a broader discussion around public health that understands that lockdowns that may accomplish your goals around the virus may actually increase chances of suicide and disconnection yeah. and these deaths of despair, which have now been understood and analyzed, uh, we're not really having a holistic conversation right. around public policy. Right. And so being able to, yes, understand in this case, you know, with uh, Dr. Fauci said, yes, you are an expert. We trust what you're saying about 
some of these issues around the virus. But hold on a second. If we're not setting that alongside of what we're seeing from our kids who are not able to go to school and the mental health price that is being paid by that, you know, I was just on a webinar just this morning mm-hmm. in which one of the one of the participants, this was around education policy, she is the principal of a charter school in South Los Angeles who uh, was talking about the challenges of leading a school in a, uh, in a community in which many of the kids are coming out of the foster care system. And she said, uh, as it relates to the policies around lockdown, which has become <clears throat> basically the LAUSD policy in so many ways, mm-hmm. said, unless we're able to compare the possible spread of the virus to the challenges of having kids in environments during the day when they could be even more dangerous not being in the schoolroom uh, or not being in the classroom. We're not really having a full conversation. So being able to, yes, understand expertise, but understanding that expertise only can give a limited view and needs to be seen holistically, I think is such a challenge uh, we're facing now in public policy. Well, and, and disconnection has become normalized for children. That's yes. what's breaking my heart is yep. really the children as I see the fear, the masks over there. And and from what I'm seeing in the numbers, it doesn't justify. Because to yeah. me, this is what policy is about. Is. The greatest good for the greatest amount of people. Yeah. And from what I, even the CDC website, I was just on there the other day because I want to check the numbers. Yeah. And the amount of deaths is still in the 99 percentile you can argue 99.7 to 99.2 whatever it's still below a percent and a majority of those they're actually saying you didn't die of covid you died with covid right had these people not already had alzheimer's diabetes it doesn't justify it to me what we're doing to especially children yeah um and i think on that i think and and we've we've even seen this recently right even with uh, the change in administration, uh, CD, one CDC official coming out and saying, <clears throat> basically, if you've been fully vaccinated, right? And by that, the CDC definition is your second shot plus two weeks. If you've been fully vaccinated, you really don't need to wear your mask. And now to see the debate that's going on within the CDC, uh, again, between experts, some saying you can, some saying you can't. Um, but you're getting to another point as well, which I think I think we're only going to fully appreciate probably in another year. I mean, I think there's going to be there are going to be so many research studies and books written about this time in our history and the policy responses uh, that all that is going to be uh, made known. And certainly, at least in some of the state comparisons, Again, seen holistically, uh, what happened in Florida versus what happened in California, you can see either that there's no difference in the COVID spread, but you see you can see dramatic differences in some of these mental health issues. Yeah. Uh, so I think again, we need to be thinking holistically about uh, about the impact of these policy decisions. Well, and the other thing to me. And this is the first time I've said it out loud, coming out a lot on a lot of these podcasts. But there's there's two things that are going to stop this, and it's not vaccinations and it's not social distancing. This to me speaks to our fear of dying, and the, this mm. to me is the spirituality component mm. of of this mm. public health crisis. There has to be a different perspective for me on death. Mm. And whether it's Christianity or Hinduism or mm. whatever, or just to, for me, just plain old spirituality in the text that I read, it's a part of this fear of dying and trying to and and protect and make everyone live as long as possible. Yeah. I even hear old people that are like, "I just want to, this is my last two years. Yeah. I just want to live." Yeah. yeah. You know, I rather have three shorter years living than five locked up with a mask on. Yeah. You know, you raise a very interesting point, and and certainly as a uh, as a Christian, uh, it has been the traditional view that 
living into our calling uh, may demand courage and will not be easy. Um, you know, one of the core texts here at the policy school is Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And in the last, he was a Frenchman that was traveling the United States and in the 1830s and was just remarking at coming from a very um, aristocratic society in France and coming to the United States where he was just seeing this these levels of freedom uh, granted, uh, held by particular groups of people, but a, a broader level of freedom that he'd never seen, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that he prophesied essentially in the last chapter is when people get to this level of freedom, they're going to they're going to be continue to be pushed to be more selfish and looking out for themselves and demanding that government protect them. Hmm, interesting. And with that, there is a a walking away from these from the spiritual dimension of life that every everything becomes so material that uh, our focus at one point Tocqueville says that to the degree one cares about a community, it's just his or her own family that they don't think about the broader mm. swath of time and the broader community in which one is living. And what Tocqueville, so that was a prediction of the future. What he was seeing in real time in the 1830s were people were building new towns. They were engaged in their communities. They were participating in their churches and businesses. He was seeing all these nonprofits springing up. I mean, the whole world of nonprofits was... You, know, you just didn't see that in Europe, right? right? But because government was so small, these nonprofits really had to still handle major issues, whether it was prisons or alcoholism or whatever the case was. But he said he saw a time when, with economic growth and success, because of freedom, people would begin to kind of turn inward. Mm. And I wonder... Uh, if we're seeing, you know, a glimpse of that. And I think the fact that our churches, synagogues and mosques were institutions that were closed down over this, I'm seeing a lot of survey work and questioning around now that things are beginning to open up, are we still going to see the same amount of people return to these gatherings? Or are we going to see a lower amount? Or, and these are the optimists out there, are the is there a chance that more people will now go back to their churches, synagogues, and mosques because they understand that they need that spiritual dimension to really be fulfilled? I yeah. think those are unanswered questions at this point, but yeah. you, I think you raise a, a very interesting question about the, the spiritual dimension of, of death and how we understand it and whether the headlong rush to avoid it at all costs thinking that we can. Well, course, that's, yeah. We you think you're going to outrun. <laughs> that's right. We're all dying. Not going to happen. Um, you know, that that's, that's a component to this focus on lockdowns and safety and those kinds of things. Yeah. And, you know, in, um, in my spiritual tradition, that one of the hardest things to overcome is attachment. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a, um, consumerism is a byproduct of yeah. that. Like being attached to your physical body, yeah, yeah. being attached to outcome, being yeah. attached, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, I'm returning to that text, which is one of the seminal Hindu texts. Um, Krishna is talking to Arjuna, who's a warrior. And first thing he says is he's on a battlefield about to fight his cousins, right? About to kill his own family. Yeah. And like you said, about Dharma and purpose, calling actually calls you to fight sometimes. Yeah. And he's like, Krishna, who is essentially God in this, says, uh, get up off your knees because he falls down in his chariot. He's like, you're fighting, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't. And then that go, that prompts the, the discussion into life and death. We all die. Yep. Those who are um, right with God are basically realize this, yeah. that you can't escape death. Right. Um, there's equanimity in facing life and death. Yeah. And so go fulfill your purpose. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a guy named Dr. Zach Bush, I don't know if you've seen any mm -hmm. of his, is just, he's got a beautiful description of the birth and the death process being essentially the same thing mm. about the light and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and,
And when you consider that, I, I just feel like that's one of the things that that some sort of faith gives you. It does. Yeah. And it's interesting phrasing around uh, birth and death. You know, certainly the, the Christian also believes that at death, we are actually given new bodies into heaven. Yeah. Right. So there is a transition, a physical transition that happens. And and that is something to be looked forward to. Uh, but of course, we also have a human nature that is very protective, very defensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's not at all that we should run headlong into death. I mean, I think the Christian tradition would say that there's there is courage, but there's also prudence and wisdom. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You know, <laughs> it's about, not not metered. You know, right. it's got to be a little right. Yeah, um, but distorted in the way that I think you've rightly pointed out, where death is the thing to be avoided at all costs, no matter what your calling is or what the environment is. Um, that is a very distorted way of uh, of looking at life because. It not only gives you this rather outsized notion that you can prevent death. It also really distorts the life that you're living. You know, there's a freedom that comes from understanding that death isn't the end. And again, in the Christian tradition, that you are going to a place where there isn't any weeping and there isn't any more death and there isn't any pain and there isn't any broken relationships those things are healed Um, but if that is the place to be avoided and all of life is right here well we've got a lot of challenges here so i said (laughs) you know i mean what's the um shawshank redemption redemption get busy living or get busy dying which are you doing yeah you know yeah very good and and the again the eastern spirituality traditions is that Tantra is such that it's non-dual, meaning don't wait to get to heaven to experience the things heaven has to offer. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not, I wasn't yeah. raised in Christian, but they yeah. would say, it's here. Yeah. Look for it. Mm-hmm. Find it. Mm-hmm. See the beauty. See the, the healed relationships and do what, go on that personal journey you need to do yeah. to find the forgiveness now, to yeah. find the beauty now, to find the bliss and the joy now. Well, and, and in that, and I think the, the Christian would say that... You know, in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as, as it is in heaven, heaven. Yeah. right? And so yeah. that that is also essentially a responsibility to say, yeah, we are in a broken world. But if you understand your calling as being one that needs to respond to that brokenness, then the earth is not going to be heaven, right? There's going to be a difference. But it's not to say it can't be better realized in some way, that you can't yeah. work towards it. Um, so, uh, but to the, the the foundational point that you're raising, the avoidance of death will not, will not put you on a track to that kind of realization. Yeah. Well, let's talk about communitarianism and really the foundations of that mm-hmm. and how you see that shifting yeah. maybe politics, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. That's the hope. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, that's right. No, um, I've always had an interest in communitarian thought. And so there's a, there's a tradition in political philosophy uh, described, uh, titled communitarianism, which goes back centuries, essentially, to the, the British uh, political philosopher and politician, uh, Sir Edmund Burke, who described the importance of local community institutions as places of civic engagement, but also identity creation, Hmm. right? So we are to find our identity, not immediately at the national level, but in our localized civic institutions first. And then if they can be made to exist in a national environment, then you start national, you start local and then go national, Hmm. right? And so he has this great phrase in in one of his writings in which he's essentially taking on the problems of the French Revolution and comparing it to the American Revolution, in which he says that um, 
really the, the work that happens in communities, and this can be real, like public service work, uh, happens through what he calls the little platoons. And the little platoons are essentially volunteer organizations that participate out of uh, churches, um, business organizations, guilds, so forth. And so this understanding that public service and engagement is not just this bifurcated model of citizens and government, mm -hmm. that there's what's known as the intermediate space, uh, the intermediate institutions. And those are these civic institutions that when they're strong, they provide opportunities for people to connect with one another, but also to uh, actually support and respond to the real policy challenges in the communities in which you're living. And so that was something that Tocqueville saw in the 1830s. That's very much of another um, book that communitarians hearken to that describes the American experience around this. But it goes through a number of uh, political philosophers and writers through uh, the 1900s and even into the 2000s. And so that's the philosophical point. Mm -hmm. Where this transitions into policy is there was a moment in the 1990s where you saw this transition between um, the Clinton administration into the very early Bush administration where you also had this array of governors, both Democrat and Republican, that were doing some really interesting, innovative things in policy at the state level, again, through robust civic institutions in responding to a variety of issues from poverty to um, prison reform, um, education was another one, um, that really showed that creating environments by which localities can respond to policy challenges was uh, producing some great results. Now, we have an initiative here called the American Project that has been exploring a what we're calling a reimagined uh, communitarian movement for the 20th century um, because what happened and I've spoken to the people who were in the Clinton administration and in the early Bush administration, where things really seemed to be developing this bipartisan communitarian movement. Yes, there were differences in how they were seeing each other, uh, but a lot of alignment mm. was 9-11. Mm -hmm. And so when 9-11 happened, this thought about the importance of states and experimentation and community-based approaches to these variety of real social challenges all of a sudden just got overrun by the so-called war on terror mm -hmm. and at that moment all the issues became national and international mm -hmm. and so in speaking with people uh, who were in the Bush administration in those early years remember W. Bush was a governor of Texas at the time and there was this real focus in this uh, part of much of his campaign in 1999 and into 2000 as we were going to we were going to focus on states and these local solutions and so forth 9-11 happens and it's out the window war on terror yeah it's department of homeland security it's uh wars in iraq and afghanistan and the the lens through which we were talking about policy completely changed mm. And so here we are now, uh, the American Project started in the wake of the 2016 election in which we were beginning to see in some of the kind of post-mortem discussions of the 2016 election, obviously it was like a tectonic plate shifting election and a lot of people were asking because none of the predictions by the experts were true, how did this happen, right? And at that point, the conversations just were beginning to center around, well, what about this loneliness issue? And were people thinking the government really wasn't speaking to them, that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were seen as failures of experts, right? That the, 
that the weapons of mass destruction were never found as much as we were told by the experts that this had happened. This cuts across the left and right. I mean, a lot of people may not know that on the right, there had been this simmering argument going on uh, under the surface where a lot of conservatives were becoming increasingly angry with American involvement overseas yeah. in these wars. Yep. And I know a lot of people on the left may see that, well, when Bush in office, everybody on the right was agreeing with our, uh, our uh, engagement, uh, military engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, there was a radical split between what was known as the neoconservatives, who were very much about an aggressive foreign policy and military approach, with those who were very much more about the early stages of the so-called America First. Mm -hmm. right? Obama wins. Here we are in 2016, and all of those arguments within the Republican Party and the broader conservative movement just became manifest. And uh, at the same time, you saw all of these voters who had actually voted for Obama twice were now voting for Trump. And so all these questions are in the air about how is this happening and, and so forth. And so, again, in this American Project Initiative, we began looking really at this issue around loneliness, which cuts across political uh, parties, uh, but understands that when we look to create these identities politically uh, to essentially um, provide a way of uh, finding some connection to one another, yeah. uh, you know, you can easily veer from effective and important civic engagement. We, we should all be voting. We should all understand the political sphere in which we're living. You know, this is obviously part of your mission around the podcast as well is to understand these issues. But where that can veer into tribalism is that perspective that you just mentioned is where you don't even understand why somebody else thinks that the way they do. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the, you know, the we, they perspective on politics. And there's no yeah. way that we can find a way, a point of agreement. So, uh, and we found that this loneliness is can be that that real trigger into tribal mm. politics, and so this communitarianism is a way of responding to that uh, with a with a focus more at the local community level than starting with these national. The kids these days say meta conversations <laughs> mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. to look more at at the local level. Yeah. You know, that, that I think that's what's so troubling to me is this otherness. Yeah. Right? I feel politically homeless, quite frankly. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't care. You know, probably people call me more conservative now. Yeah. But that's in relationship to living in California. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but I really... And I just... I was... I looked up communitarianism online the other night yeah. in prep for this. And I got so confused with the words. It actually seemed more liberal. Yeah. And liberal means actually... when. It felt like it had the underpinnings of more what's now considered Republican, which is yeah. individualism and yeah. freedom. And I'm like, I'm so confused. Yeah. And I'm someone that's pretty well read. And then so communitarianism got confused with liberalism, got confused with liberal and conservative. And I'm like, I don't care what you want to call me. Yeah. You, you can put whatever label I know what I believe in. I right. know what my fundamental truths are. Yep. Um, but it's just, it's again, it's like pick a side. Yeah. And I think that's, again about the communitarian philosophy is that it is, I think, what people, especially these days where everything has become so polarized, it's difficult to think about politics that's non-ideological, mm -hmm. right? And a communitarian politics would say that it's much more of an organic approach to local policy. You know, the, the, the great phrase that is used by some of my friends in local government is that there's no Republican or Democratic way to fill a pothole, right? <laughs> but we all agree the pothole <laughs> needs to be filled, right? And so oh, if it. you live on the street where that pothole is, you care about that, right? And in the same way, there are policy issues that we care about. They can be in education. They can be in... Um, a variety of, of different policy issues that don't have to be ideological yeah, and may look different in Malibu 
than in Topeka, Kansas. And are we okay with that? I think where we're in this time is when we're not only ideological, is we're ideological to a point where given any bucket of policy issues, you need to line up exactly with that ideological perspective on each one of those different policy issues. And I don't think what that allows for is the reality that we all know personally because we've lived in different places, which is to say, I know this policy issue is going to look different in Santa Monica than where yeah. I grew up in the middle of New Jersey. Yeah. And that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just makes exactly. it what's going to work you know, in those places. And I think, again, it's a much more humane approach because what happens when things get ideological it becomes much more it becomes a lot easier to say well you all in texas or you all mm -hmm. in san francisco mm -hmm. uh, whether on the left or right that you just you call people out for these caricatures in some cases mm -hmm. without allowing you know the communitarian would be very much behind that great bumper sticker i see every once in a while that says you know keep Seattle weird. Yeah. Austin, or for keep sure. Austin weird. Keep Austin where I was there. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so the communitarian, either on the left or right, would say, yeah, yeah, keep Austin weird. But allow also Dallas to be Dallas. Yep. Right. And maybe allow West Texas to be West Texas. Yep. Right. Yep. And so the ability to allow for that kind of real diversity, um, again, that's based on community and engagement at the local level, um, I think we're losing that because of politics, again, as you say, that, that we, they, and then that gets extrapolated nationally to say that if you're from an area <clears throat> or you're a particular race or ethnicity, then here are the boxes that you obviously tick off. This is yep. how you think about A, B, C, and D. Yep. No ability to treat one another as individuals yeah what they're doing in this country the media both sides is is creating this otherness i feel yeah and yeah. Uh, you know part of america is that's why we're a federalism right we're, yeah. we're separate but equal kind not separate yeah. but equal but like let texas be it's like matthew yeah. mcconaughey's doing in austin yeah. he's like trying to keep that community feel he's like yeah. you're welcome here yeah but there's a certain vibe that yeah. we have going don't force us yeah and it's it's the forcing of, yeah. of my way on you. Like I'm Greek. There's Greek neighborhoods in Chicago, and the yeah. Greeks stick together. Yeah. Great. Yeah. If you don't like Greek food, don't come. Yeah. And I'm fine. Like, and when it comes to race, it's like I can honor your traditions. Yeah. But what's the umbrella we live in? And to me, it's America. And there yeah. has to be some underlying values that we all agree upon. And then from there. You do you. It's kind of that live and let live. Like, but don't force me to say I have to do this. I have to do that. Well, I, I think, have to think this way. I think the struggle that we're in right now is how we balance the national motto, right? E pluribus unum, out mm -hmm. of many, many one. one. And yeah. we're we're in a real pluribus age right now, where it is very much about many. And you're over there, and you're over there, and you're this group, and you think like this, and you think like this, and you're from here, and you're from there. And everything is all about categories, right? It's not about, well, what holds these categories together? Yeah. And to me, I think it's actually the Constitution, right? That that is, that is a document that was actually built for a diverse people. But can I interrupt and ask you, because the critics are, but those were, the, the Constitution was created by yep. white men yep. who had slaves. Yep. How do you respond to that? So my, I think Martin Luther King said it best, right? King called the Declaration of Independence a promissory note. And I think the Constitution can be seen that same way too, mm -hmm. which is to say, the founders wrote a document that certainly had precedent leading up to it, but was unlike any governing document in the history of mankind. And in writing it, first, I think it's important to study the Constitution to see that it actually does say something about slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, 
at the same time, it understands that we are a very diverse people. And at the time of the writing, the circumstances that had divided the country around slavery were one that the founders said that if we can take steps here to set slavery on the path of extinction, then we believe that we've got a document that we can all live with. Mm. Turns out that's not what happened. It took a civil war and 600,000 people killed. Okay. But are there parts, are the themes of the Constitution and the Declaration such that they can still be appealed to by people no matter who they are yeah. or where they're from? And the, the genius of the American Civil Rights Movement, particularly in the 1960s, was one in which civil rights leaders, predominantly out of Christian churches, said, America, you are not living up to the ideals. I believe in the Constitution. Mm. I believe in the Declaration of mm. Independence. And because I do, I know we are not living up to these things. I just got chills. <laughs> we're not going to look to destroy those things or just say that white slaveholders were the ones that wrote it. So we need to create some new Constitution out of whole cloth. I want to hold you, the civil rights leaders say, I want to hold you, America, to those standards. Yep. And so mm. that, that demands realizing that those standards are genius. Yeah. And, but also realizing that it calls for a more perfect union. There is something there that says that, yeah, we have not realized those things. <laughs> um, we have not realized those things, but at the same time, we have the mechanisms in place, the processes in place, the government structures in place to realize those things over time and to realize that there are going to be trade-offs along the way. Mm -hmm. And so I, that, I think, is, would be how I would say that those things, those documents and the principles of those documents are very much worth conserving because through those documents, we will be able to, and have been, centuries of change has happened in this country based on those two documents, Yeah. right? We haven't come up with something new. We're not like the French that has gone through like a number of different <laughs> republics with new constitutions and all starting, you know. We've stayed really with the ability to amend our constitution as we did certainly through the Civil War with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, we have made positive change and progress on the foundation of those documents. And I have no doubt that we are going to continue to do so. Hmm. What would you say to people who, who feel that the system, the way, and, and you kind of just answered it, but I still, I don't know what to say to people when they say it's inherently racist. Yeah. So, again, this is not to say that there isn't history and systems that have resonance and impact today. Right. Okay. At the same time, to say that America is fundamentally a racist country or that the Constitution is fundamentally a racist document a, that doesn't give you a grounds for moving forward. Where do you go with that realization, yep. right? If this is just, you know... Well, you the, go with tearing everything down. Well, and, I, and I'll say to that, you know, and this goes back to the conversation I just had with these um, school leaders on the issue of race and education. One of the participants made this really great point. Yeah, there are issues that my black male students in particular face that my white students do not, mm -hmm. Okay but I'm still gonna call them to excellence. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to change my criteria that I have for them to succeed because I want them to succeed in the world. Mm -hmm. And so how do we keep that balance between realizing the real challenges that are here while still calling people to excellence mm -hmm. in all way, shape or form, in behavior, in work product, in personal lives, mm -hmm. while at the same time understanding that there is still progress to be made on some of these issues. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be made 
together. And it's going to be made based on these founding documents. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of tensions there. Uh, but certainly, I don't think we're going to get there if we continue to think of each other in categories. Yeah. Because when we think of each other in categories, we also think that the categories all line up in their views on the world in the same way. Right. I know black Trump voters. Well, that's what Candace right? Owens keeps talking about. She's like, why are you lumping us all? And then you call, uh, I mean, it was Chelsea Handler who did that. I just, it yeah. was like, who, who said to, on Twitter or something, you can't vote for Trump, you are black. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's a white woman telling, yeah. I'm like, isn't that racism? Well, and Biden said something <laughs> similar to during yeah. the campaign, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. so unless we can all believe that we have agency, yeah. and this goes back to this conversation this morning, right? If if these issues around per, uh, around the term structural racism are so endemic that you cannot be called to a higher standard, then we we can easily slide into that term that uh, President W. Bush used around the, the bigotry of low expectations. Mm-hmm. That's not to dismiss some of the challenges, especially that we know of, that particularly black boys face, right, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't mean that we diminish or decrease the expectations we have. Mm. It's a hard tension. Um, and it's, again, not to say that progress can't be made. Um, it will be made. It is being made. Um, but we are called to live in those tensions. I really believe that. Yeah, one of the favorite, um, one of my favorite webinars, because I've been joining since you've yeah. been inviting me to some of those, was Cornell West. Yeah. And, uh, Robbie George. Uh, who was it? Robbie George. Yeah. From Princeton. Yeah. yeah. More conservative and yeah. more liberal. And two different kind yeah. of spiritually foundation men just yeah. go, but enjoying each other and laughing and well and that you bring up a really great point right is so how do we get to that e pluribusum i think one of the ways is friendship hmm. it sounds very simple and maudlin maybe but unless we can say that we i mean you know all the data that's now come out about uh I think it was Match.com did the survey of what is the what is the one what are the issues of which you can never date somebody, and it used to be, and this was before the Match.com surveys, but similar surveys like back in the fifties and sixties was around race. Yeah, right. That people would not date somebody of another race. Now that's not an issue. Smoking. That's my. <laughs> I have well, I have a profile up. It's smoking. So there's some of these like what you might call personal habit type things with beer, but also politics. Oh, yeah. Where people will not date somebody from another political perspective. And so here we are talking about these issues around race and ethnicity, where that of this generation, uh, those in their 20s and 30s and 40s, is not really that big of a deal. No. And that's something to be celebrated, I think. But at the same time, we've now taken on another category in which we've said that identity your political identity is something that i just i just well personally personal experience here i'm on it i'm on match and it really is and i think you know we can wrap this up because it goes back to your saying politics is downstream from culture yeah and what i'm finding in conversations i'm having with men that i don't know is that there's an underlying value system that's i that's informing now their politics and so the political well and let me just interject yeah go ahead i think that value system is an identity system Hmm. right which is to say that set of values that undergirds whether i'm a conservative or a progressive is also a a way of finding identity that makes us feel right with ourselves if you don't have any other way to identify. That's exactly right. If you don't have those other ways of shaping your identity, obviously we're always going to search for that way to be right with ourselves. And if that identity is not found in these other ways, then we will take our politics, Mm -hmm. ratchet it up to such a degree, make it the perfect 
and in so doing understand that if that's the perfect then anything else obviously is not just imperfect but evil <laughs> and that's the dynamic that we've created for ourselves yeah yeah it's, it's so, been so interesting i mean this is really social experiment match.com yeah, it is. and you and you oh, see yeah. that it's like some people i could you can have conversations yep. with and they're open to hearing different ideas i have to say the guys that grew up in california yep. not so much not so much no interesting well, they all should listen to this podcast. I know. I hope so. Really quick, I do want to get touch, if you have a second, to yep. touch on that article that I sent to you that yeah. I read. Yep. Um, and the, speaking of California, this yeah. is, all these are beautiful segues. Yeah. Um, the uh, mass exodus yeah. of this state. Yeah. Well. By both, I feel, by both parties. Like, by well, a lot of people. Because in part, it is. It is uh, based on economics. Right? Mm. Um, it's not quoted in the piece that you're mentioning, but I, I often hearken back to uh, a study produced by the Legislative Analyst Office for the state of California. The LAO is the nonpartisan research arm of the state mm -hmm. legislature. And they did a research study on inflow outflow patterns into California and out of California in the period between, it was either 07 and 17 or 08 and 18. It was a 10-year period. And there were uh, three major drivers of people leaving the state, or three major categories of people leaving the mm -hmm. state. One was age-based, and that age-based was uh, Californians under 18. Now you say to yourself, do we have a runaway crisis here? <laughs> Where are they going? Well, no. What that was were Californians who were kids within families, and the families were leaving. And so okay. when a family leaves with two, three, one, five kids, that shows up in the LAO research as a Californian under 18 leaving. Uh-huh. So families are leaving the state. Yeah. Right? The second... Um, was how why, why do you think that is? Why I, for these I, economic reasons. Okay, for the because I said to my friend today, I'm like, I don't know how you raise children in this education system. But. And that's another part of it, right? Yeah. So I think the the education piece, which again has been exacerbated by COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have friends or family in other states, you know their kids are going to school, and your car and your kids ain't <laughs> right. And so you've. Now got this back and forth between how come other states can do open their schools and we can't, right? Now, again, this research was, uh, again, either between 07 and 17 or 08 and 18. So this is well before COVID. But to your point, the families leaving, I think, are for the reasons, A, that you say, and B, the reasons I say. The second were um, uh, household income. Mm -hmm. So... $75,000 and, and under was the largest block of people leaving. Mm -hmm. $150,000 and over were people coming in. Mm -hmm. So what do we have there? We have people leaving who are in the middle to lower rungs of the income spectrum mm -hmm. and people coming in at the higher rungs. So it's only exacerbating again mm -hmm. this split between rich and poor mm -hmm. in the state. And I think a lot of it has to do with these economic factors, cost of housing, cost of gasoline, cost of everything, right? Um, and then the other piece was where where people were going. And so the people that were coming to California were coming from predominantly Illinois or New York. Chicago, other urban. Yes. And people leaving were going to Nevada, Texas, Texas. and Arizona. Yep. So... All to say that the drivers, most of the survey research is showing, and to your point that it's across the political uh, spectrum, is cost of living. And, you know, the blue state model, as it's called, has always promised Californians, yeah, you're going to pay a little bit more in taxes, but you're going to get so much more in services. And it, we're now in this place where if you drive any highway around here, if you send your kids to a public school in many places, um, you're not seeing it. 
That's that's what I can't. I was. I said I'm fine. My mom was like, I can't believe you live out there. Cost of gas. I go. Yeah. Listen, I live in one of the most beautiful places yeah. in the country, but I don't have kids. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit. I'm only yeah. looking out for myself. But even me, it's getting harder. Right. right. And I and and I said the proof is what are you doing with my money? That's yeah. what I want to know. That's a, the homeless rate yeah. is right. That's unbelievable. Right. 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 I mean, go to Venice. Go. So I want to see, I want to actually, what are you doing? Going to French Laundry? Yeah, right. Well, and again, I think that's what points to why there's a recall underway here in California. And I tell my friends from out of state, you know, as much as the governor wants to paint this as some Trump right wing yeah. operation, I know more than a few Democrat friends of mine that have signed that petition. Me too. And it's for the reasons of why are we, our schools still locked down, their parents, or they're small business owners and say, you know, if this business was in Texas, I'd still be doing fine. If this mm-hmm. business were in Florida, I'd still be doing fine. But I'm dealing with all of these restrictions and I'm not seeing the delivery on services. So, Well, your your Twitter handle is Pete4California. So yeah. I was like, does that mean he's running? No, that- that- <laughs> <laughs> or does that mean you're dedicated to... Staying here, fighting the good fight. Well, I think, yeah. So, uh, I, and I am. I mean, I I, lo- I do love the state as someone who did not grow up here. Yeah. And obviously the work we're, we're doing through the School of Public Policy is we're preparing a lot of leaders for California and the country. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as many challenges as we have here in the state, I think people are becoming increasingly aware that this, again, so-called blue state model is not sustainable, and frankly, it's not delivering on its promise. And so with that, I think there's an opportunity to change. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Great to be with you. It was so much fun, and uh, you, may, you may have a student in January. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to that conversation with Pete Peterson. I hope more of us can have some open and honest dialogue about the issues facing our country today. If you're enjoying these connected conversations, please go to iTunes, give the podcast a like, subscribe, give it a review, go to the YouTube channel, check out the videos. I'd be so grateful. I hope you all are having an excellent summer and I look forward to chatting with you in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay connected.